You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. On today's episode, we welcome Ben Burgess, professor of philosophy and author of the new book, Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. We'll be talking with him about that new book and also beginning an argument with him about some writings he's done on the irrelevance of Marxist theory of value to Marxist theory of exploitation. And we are going to break that conversation into two different episodes, so stay tuned for the second half of the conversation in a future episode. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we will begin that interview with Ben Burgess. But first, as we do in every episode, a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is June 8th, and Andrew and I are going to be talking about a piece by Vicente Navarro, which was just published in Monthly Review. It's called, What is Happening in the United States? How Social Class Influences Political Life. The piece actually was just published uh, yesterday, Monthly Review, and so we originally read an earlier version of the piece from uh, the International Journal of Health Services. There are just a few minor differences between the two papers, but um, our conversation might reflect the fact that we're working from two different versions of the same paper. So basically, Navarro's argument is a defense of the anti-neoliberal economic reductionist explanation of Trumpism. And he's trying to make some relevance for that analysis, even though so much of the social science literature suggests that racism and you know authoritarianism and such are the primary motivations for the behavior of the Trump base. That, that's what he's trying to do. And he knows he's got an uphill battle because all of the uh, social science research into, for instance, the factors that gave Trump the Electoral College victory in 2016, all, all of that goes against him. So I, I think from the very beginning of the article, he pulls a fast one. Is that when he says, well, there have been a lot of articles written about the role of sexism and racism. Oh, but let's explore how social class is also relevant. Yeah. And not only does he do that, but I mean, he's couching his argument for people who, first of all, probably are outside the United States, so they don't know a lot about the U.S. political system. But secondly, he's writing for, I guess, people in the healthcare industry, you know, public health uh, academics. They don't know much about the social science literature on this question. The way he portrays it is as if everybody has just been focused on gender and race and they've forgotten, because people in the United States, you know, don't talk about class at all because it's an allegedly classless society. They don't even consider the role of class. But, you know, that's another thing that's hugely important. And that is just 100% flat out wrong. I mean, first of all, a lot of these people are sociologists. And there's one thing that sociology has always been focused on, it's social class. But even among the political scientists and so forth, everybody who has looked at the 
2016 election, the 2020 election, they're always looking at some measures of social class. This is where the whole trope of Trump support allegedly comes from the so-called white working class comes from. People talked about this of the yin-yang. I mean, everybody goes into these diners in Iowa, okay, even in the journalists, okay. So it's not that anybody ever ignored the possible role of class in explaining Trump's electoral college victory and why people support Trump. People considered it in like every study people consider it but it just proves not to be the case so when they say this has to do with racism it has to do with sexism it has to do with authoritarianism it's not because they're ignoring the potential role of class it's that class differences holding other factors constant do not explain who voted for trump versus who did not vote for trump who flipped to Trump having voted for Obama versus who voted for Hillary Clinton having voted for Obama. The social class measures just do not have any explanatory value when it comes to, you know, understanding Trump's victory in 2016, for instance. We should point out that we have discussed this um, at length in several episodes, including our the first episode of this podcast, which was about Obama-Trump voters. And Andrew, he makes a, an argument based on the fallacious Obama-Trump voter phenomena, right? He 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 actually brings that up. Yeah, he brings it up. He brings it up in its pure form, which is the Michael Moore line. Yeah, they voted twice for black guy whose middle name is uh, sane right you know so like how could they be racists that's the pure form and you know that's like i think what a lot of people believe yeah navarro says to quote um to focus only on racism ignores the other facets of the situation such as that many white working class people who voted for trump had voted for barack obama in his first run for president i mean i guess once more we have to say First of all, a lot of people who are by any stretch of the imagination, any definition of racist, they are racist. I mean, people who like, you know, no, I don't want, you know, my daughter marrying a black man. Okay, those kinds of people, one quarter of those kinds of people voted for Obama, you know, so this was reported in the book uh, Identity Politics by Sides Tesler and Vavrick. So you can get more sophisticated, less, you know, in-your-face kind of racism, but even the most in-your-face kind of distaste for people of a certain color, e- even people like like that, a quarter of them voted for Obama. So uh, it's just not the case that racists are not going to vote for a black guy, and therefore, if they vote for a black guy, that proves they're not racist. It doesn't prove anything. I have to say that even if I wasn't familiar with some of the literature or we hadn't discussed this before, I think I would have come away from reading Navarro's piece with the impression that he defends his thesis very weakly. In fact, he even makes his thesis statement very weak. It's all um, sort of suggestive, just enough to reinforce the beliefs of people who already have this sort of economistic picture of Trumpism. But he doesn't really have the um, courage to like really take on other theories and criticize them. And he has to keep on acknowledging all these counterfactual phenomena. It all seems vague enoughly argued that that it's just made to like play to the rafters of the social democratic crowd without having to directly confront 
the literature on this question. Right. And another case where he contradicts himself is trying to explain why so many working class people don't vote. He says, well, they don't vote because they lack power. But what he means by them lacking power is there aren't strong left or left of center political parties in the United States or class oriented trade unions. In other words, this is just like what the European Social Democrats have always said. And so because these institutions that supposedly represent them, you know, are non-existent basically in the United States, working people feel disaffected, they feel alienated, and and so they by and large don't vote. Uh, He even says that the majority of the voting population is not working class, which is just, it's, it's not true majority of the voting population is is working class according to his own definitions. So he tries to explain why so many people don't vote by the lack of social democratic institutions, basically. Okay, and he says, like, and so this is why we can't get things like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal and so forth, because we got a liberal political party in the European sense and a far-right party, the Republicans, but no left-of-center parties. But then he gives us some history And lo and behold, of course, the New Deal comes in under FDR, and FDR was not from a left-wing party. And guess what? He, He even admits the majority of the working class abstained when Roosevelt was elected. Okay, so abstain. They didn't vote. So the, the, the fact that people don't vote is not an indication of, you know, being disenchanted with neoliberalism or some modern stuff. It's just always existed. But what he basically is doing is putting forward hypotheses which are not on the face of it unreasonable as an explanation for things, you know, a potential explanation for things. The problem is all everything that he's saying putting forward as a hypothesis has already basically been, you know, refuted by the facts that the the people have investigated up and down and sideways. It's always been the case that, that like, you know, people at the bottom are disproportionately non-voters, and it's not because of particular policies or or anything like that. I keep thinking that this anti-neoliberal narrative about Trumpism is going to die out, but it keeps reappearing in different forms. He's doing more than defending a narrative. I mean, he's defending the whole future, not only in the United States, but particularly in the United States, he's defending the whole future of a colorblind, class-first, social democratic political uh, orientation. And he's very explicit about that at the end. He says, well, you know, like Trumpism remains a big threat even without Trump. And I got to give him credit for saying that. But why is that? He says, it's because the leadership of the Democratic Party is not willing to make the changes in the economic and political institutions, such as Medicare for all, that are required to satisfy the enormous needs of the majority of the U.S. working class, peren, belonging to all races close paren. And so then he says what's needed is to find a transversal or cross-cutting, find the transversal elements that can unite the different races, genders, and components of the working class and other components of the popular classes. So it's again, uh, let's, let's 
buy these people off with some economic goodies, de-emphasize the role of race, and try to unite everybody behind us you know, with our social democratic programs. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Up next, our interview with Ben Burgess. Today is June 1st, and we have the privilege of having Ben Burgess, philosophy professor and author, on the podcast today. So welcome, Ben. Yeah, thank you for having me. Ben Burgess is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. He has a PhD in philosophy from the University of Miami. His academic specialization has to do with logical paradoxes about self-reference. But these days, he spends most of his time exposing the logical fallacies of right-wing reactionaries and technocratic centrists and arguing for democratic socialism. He writes a column for Jacobin and hosts a podcast and YouTube show called Give Them an Argument. So welcome again to the podcast, Ben. Welcome, Ben. Yeah, thanks, guys. We're hoping to talk about both your recent book, Give Them an Argument, and then also some articles you've written about the theory of exploitation. I should say that the two things are related because we're going to be uh, illustrating the central thing that the book is about, giving them an argument. We're going to be having probably an argument about the whole issue of exploitation. Sounds good. So, Ben, your book, Give Them an Argument, for those who haven't read it yet, can you give us a brief overview of what the book's about? Yeah, it's an attempt to do a couple of things at once. One of them is to serve as a as a polemic to get people who share a lot of my political commitments to have a different attitude towards logic you know meaning the the study of arguments uh and to to see that as a more valuable activity than it seemed to me when i wrote it uh that oftentimes they do and to to make the case that this is something that is a a skill that's worth that's worth learning uh, so that's one thing. And then another thing is to actually serve as kind of a rudimentary informal logic textbook to actually show how to how to go about taking apart arguments and seeing how they work and uh, seeing how they go wrong if they go wrong and how you might be able to, you know, to patch them up to do better. Is the impetus for writing the book because you think that in the left there's a the lack of this kind of argumentation? Yeah, and and I don't want to exaggerate that point because obviously it varies tremendously. There, there you know, there there are plenty of uh, of positive examples, but I do also think that there is a certain tendency on the left uh, for some people to be way too dismissive of the um, of the importance of this kind of thing. I think that on the one hand. Uh, you know, there are people on the left uh, who overreact uh, to some of the worst people in the world uh, when they kind of weaponize the rhetoric of uh, of logic and good reasoning uh, in kind of silly ways that, that I talk about in the book, like a sort of paradigm example would be Ayn Rand, uh, who often implies that if you really take just sort of basic principles about logic seriously, then that will lead you somehow to agree with her about um, her moral and political conclusions. And I think that there's a long tradition that uh, that comes out of Rand and others, you know, who uh, who like to talk that way, that goes to to people like Stefan Molyneux, um, if you're not familiar with a certain kind of like right-wing ecosystem, none of these names might mean anything, but 
uh, Molyneux is somebody who, you know, sometimes calls himself an anarcho-capitalist, who's very fond of saying in various things that they're not an argument. Or on a more mainstream conservative level, people like Ben Shapiro, who often likes to tell people that facts don't care about their feelings, implying that tough-minded conservatives like him are deriving their moral or political conclusions straight from the empirical facts, uh, whereas you know mushy-headed uh, progressives and leftists are deriving theirs from their feelings. And I think that one thing that's going on is that oftentimes uh, some people on the left how you know mostly hear certain kind of certain kinds of logical terminology certainly logical fallacy talk uh from people like this and kind of have an instinctive aversion and you know we could get into like the sort of cultural history of of where i think that might come from with some of the history of new atheism and message boards and all that stuff but i mean i think that's one kind of cultural phenomenon that leads some people on the left to sort of instinctively roll their eyes when they start to hear this kind of language. Not that like they go so far as to think that, you know, they shouldn't be giving reasons to believe whatever they believe. You know, everybody, you know, everybody pretty much makes arguments, you know, whether you want to or not, but that what we're doing when we do logic, which is the study, you know, like studying arguments, taking them apart, seeing how they work, uh, you know, using special terminology to, you know, to sort of diagnose uh, what's wrong with them, that that whole area of study is something that they associate with uh, with, with people like that and, uh, and have oftentimes too extreme a reaction to and sort of dismiss the value of it. I think that's one thing that's going on. I think another thing that's going on uh, that we might get into a little bit later in the discussion has to do with what's sometimes called standpoint epistemology, which is the idea that uh, people in certain positions or maybe who are oppressed in certain ways have some special insight and everybody else should uh, should just defer to them. And, you know, the influence of that on the left might be, uh, you know, might be part of the problem. But I think without making any sweeping claims about how widespread it is, I think it is a thing. So the book serves as sort of a, a primer for those who want to use tools of logic and philosophy to debate people on the right, but it's not just a type of uh, thinking that is for left versus right, correct? Part of the uh, the value of, of the stuff is that when um, disagreements arise on the left, if the only tools that we have at our disposal for talking to, you know, to people who we disagree with are basically either mockery or moral condemnation, but if those are the only tools available to you, uh, then when those disagreements arise on on the left, you end up just applying those to each other. And that's that's the only way that you can navigate those disagreements, uh, which I think gets incredibly ugly and uh, toxic and uh, and alienating to um, you know the people who we want to appeal to. You will, on your last point, there's a difference between whether or not you know rational debate will like settle things politically. And whether or not rational debate can like answer something theoretically, right? We we can aspire to understand the truth of something and to work ideas out. Whether or not we uh, think that alone will like settle political conflict, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I think that whereas it is certainly true that one of the reasons 
to care about good reasoning is to uh, is to convince people who are convincible. But also, I, I like your addition just now too because. It's not the case that persuasion is the only point of reasoning, or even necessarily always the main point. That it's, it's you know, the, the primary function of, of good reasoning is just figuring out what's true. And uh, that could be, you know, that could be something that's useful, you know, even without another person being involved at all. So for reasons of space, we couldn't um, air our, all the parts of this interview. So I'm going to cut out this section where we had a long discussion about the problems with standpoint epistemology as used by people on the left. And we're going to pick back up what we were just discussing, the prevalence of post-truth thinking and the effect of social media and changes in media landscape to this um, proliferation of post-truth thinking. It's also that the, the people who are producing the content are competing for attentions in this space, right? And that the way the social media space is designed, it fosters a a certain type of writing or content creation that's really a type of pandering to people's pre-existing preferences. So it's not a particularly, it's not one in which people's views get challenged because the entire approach of creating the, the media content, whether we're talking about alternative media or, you know, mainstream media is is pandering to some kind of base and giving people headlines that 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 uh, resonate with what they already believe, um, and that you know that it, it includes help making people on the left or liberals feel like they're more rational than other people because that's like a belief that people on the left have about themselves, and people on the right have it. I mean, that's what the you know the Jordan Petersons and the Ben Shapiro's are, are all about. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think that the new technologies have definitely made this more prevalent in our face, you know, every day. But I, I don't think this is at all a new problem. I, I think it's been a problem in the, the general culture kind of like forever. I mean, Plato writes about it when he talks about the death of Socrates. And Marx faced this problem. There's a famous incident where, you know, he's in a debate with this radical tailor, uh, Wilhelm Weitling, and Weitling is like a romantic and talking about how he's creating uh, sympathy among the workers and making them feel good, and uh, Marx just gets finally, like, exasperated and says, nobody ever benefited from ignorance. So it's been there all along. It's out there in the general culture. I mean, way before social media, uh, Hofstadter wrote a book, I think, uh, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, I think it was called. And this anti-intellectualism is, it's been prevalent in society ever ever since I can remember, well before social media, well before Trump. I agree that, you know, things have have made it worse. But I, I guess why I'm asking about the link between the manifestations on the left and the general culture is a lot of people think that they come into the left and, you know, that makes them different and that they don't carry the baggage of the whole society. But, but people do carry the baggage and it takes a lot, a lot of work to undo the baggage of the whole society. And I think that the resistance to reason, uh, the resistance to argument, to logic is all part of carrying, in most cases, I mean, there might be exceptions, but I think people are carrying 
their pre-existing prejudices against experts, against uh, technocrats, against uh, intellectuals. They're carrying that into the left, and it's hurtful. And it's hurtful in the end. I mean, you you talked about the 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 standpoint epistemology, okay? But why do people fall for this particular standpoint epistemology? It's because of this overriding idea that the way to figure out what you should believe is you figure out who you trust, who you should listen to. That's very, very prevalent. So this particular manifestation is listen to the trans people, listen to the women, listen to the black people, listen to the Canadians, <laughs> whatever that might mean. Well, how about, you know, looking at the arguments? How about looking at the facts? How about using your own mind? Right? We're not going to have a new society unless people learn how to use their minds and, and value that self-development, in my view. And as long as you're trusting somebody else, it's just like Eugene B. Deb said. You trust somebody else. If Moses can lead you into the promised land, Moses can lead you right out of the promised land. That's the problem of, of, of basing what you believe on who you trust. Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, the last part of the book is the one where I, I make less pithily, you know, the same case that you just did, that you can only build a, a different kind of society where it's like the uh, C.L.R. James line, you know, every cook can rule by having the great mass of the population, you know, being able to reason and discuss and, and plan. You know, I, I quote what Rosa Luxemburg says in, in her pamph- on the Russian Revolution in 1918 about how there's no preset guidebook to how to solve the uh, the problems that are uh, that are created by transition to uh, to a new society that uh, which is which is why she says that you know one of the reasons she gives for thinking that democracy you know can't be a sort of optional add-on and and so I, I think that that's that's a further reason for the left certainly the radical left to uh, to think that these are um, these are muscles that, that you need to be able to exercise I, I would like to go back to this issue of the utilitarian or instrumental use of reason to, to persuade other people. And I've seen a couple of reviews of your book where people have raised this issue. I, I think you would admit that methods of reasoning are not the only way to persuade people. And you said, you know, there are a lot of people who are unpersuadable in any case. But often people are more persuaded by what moves them than rational argument. And my sense is that, and it's not just a sense, I mean, I've, I've been on the receiving end of this, that there's a lot of resistance to reasoning on the left because a lot of the left is involved in a project of winning adherence and gaining power. And if that's what you're all about, what you want to do is win the most adherence and gain the most power. And if reason is not the best way to do that, then you're going to prefer other methods. What what do you think about that? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think where I thought you were going at the beginning is a little bit different from from where you you went, but it's certainly... I mean, on the question of of how you're actually going to convince people, 
of course, that's not, you know, it's not at all the case that there's any sort of guarantee that what's objectively the best argument is going to be the most convincing to uh, to the most people. I, I think that's, yeah, it's clearly not true. I, I think that it's definitely the case that humans are a narrative species and uh, and how, you know, like how arguments are rhetorically packaged is going to be at least as important to their persuasive power as, as the quality of the argument itself. I would say that the quality of the argument itself is not irrelevant uh, to its uh, to its persuasive power. Uh, but if, if all you're concerned with is, is persuasion, I mean that I, I don't know how much you know of a case you can uh, you know you can base on that for uh, the, the importance of reasoning because that's always an open empirical question like how much one of the other is going to be convincing. I mean I do think that in practice, if you never get around to, to explaining what's wrong with somebody's argument, then um, you are going to lose some gettable people because of that you know that they will assume that you just don't have a uh, a good response to that argument. But yeah, also other things move people for sure. Uh, and certainly issues of presentation and there's, there's nothing wrong with that even. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, rhetoric, you know, should, should be neglected any more than logic, but also that I think sometimes this discussion becomes muddied because people have a sense that one of the things that, that moves people is uh, emotional reactions and and one of the things i was actually trying to push back against most in the book is the idea that emotional reactions are um are sort of innately uh something that should be counterposed to good reasoning i I think that if you're engaged in normative reasoning you know reasoning about what we should do uh what's what would be right or wrong to do just or unjust to do you know which goals we care about are going to be uh you know very relevant to that that you know that there's that i mean that's that would be what i I take to be the most important core of of hume's point about you know facts and values that the facts the empirical facts can be very relevant to telling us how how to achieve whatever goals that we care about but they can't tell us which goals to care about in the first place. And I would argue that anytime you're, you're reasoning about which goals to care about, you're always appealing to some other goal that you antecedently uh, care about, or else you're just not going to get where you want to go. But that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as good or bad reasoning about how to achieve the goals you care about, or also about uh, how to sort of align what you care about into an internally consistent picture. Ben was talking about C.R. James and Every Cook Shall Govern. That's really meaningful to us. Uh, he got it from Lenin, and we were just actually discussing this in the, our, our most recent episode, Lenin's State and Revolution. It's it's from the State and Revolution and other writings of, of, of Lenin at the time. And when, when uh, C.R. James said this, put forward this vision of Every Cook Shall Govern, he was allied with Raya Dunyavskaya who is the, the founder of Marxist humanism, and she was the one who really carried that idea forward and developed it, you know, and we're still working basis of, of that basic idea. And and the key for Dunyevskaya is every cook shall govern, but every cook needs to be able to govern not just in practice, but also in theory, or in other words, to effectively govern, you need not just practice, but but you need theory. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So Ben, again, for to our listeners, the title of the book is Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. And as we've been discussing, the book is about reason, debate, and logic, and the importance of providing actual logical arguments and not just snarky uh, responses and personal attacks. And of course, Andrew and I agree, and that's one of the things we often talk about in this podcast. Um, so we thought we'd try to give it a demonstration of that sort of reason debate here on the podcast to, quote, give Ben an argument about his theory of exploitation, have him respond and we'll we'll have a little civil discussion here. Ben has written a, a post on Medium, I believe, and I forget what's the name of the article. It was in uh, Arc Digital Media is the publication, but it publishes through Media or it published through Medium at the time. From Marx's theory of exploitation, it's called, from November twelfth of twenty nineteen. Yeah. Oh, and he also put forward this theory uh, in a, a recent interview with the late Michael Brooks. And we'll, of course, put links in the description of the podcast episode and everything. So, Ben, in your piece, you argue that, quote, the worker is the only person who creates the product, and that's the only person who has a right to it, and by an extension, a right to its value, close quote. 
And you refer to this as Marxist theory of exploitation. So first question is, do you literally mean that your theory, that what you're describing here is the same theory that Marx uh, has had? I should say first that what I'm, I'm putting forward there is not is, is not original to uh, to me. I'm getting it uh, from uh, the uh, late Marxist uh, analytic philosopher uh, G.A. Cohen in a article that you can find in the Verso website, I believe, just called the Labor Theory of Value and uh, Exploitation, or possibly the other way around. And in the first half of that article, Cohen puts forward so you know some claims about the labor theory of value, which I'm not endorsing uh, because I'm somewhat agnostic about the value theory questions. Uh, I, I think that, you know, there are many people, uh, one of whom is on this call, who have put a lot of uh, time into thinking about it, into writing about it, and parsing various ways in which that could be interpreted. I know I know, Andrews is the uh, temporal single system interpretation of the labor theory of value, which right there, just in the name, you know that there must be multiple system interpretations non-temporal interpretations. That's a literature which I can barely claim to have scratched the surface of. And so in a in an attempt to know my limitations, uh, I did not in that piece or anywhere else uh, express a view one way or the other about either the exegetical question of how to interpret the labor theory of value or the uh, or the further question of whether uh, whatever Marx meant is is true. I don't actually have have views about those those questions. I need to read more about it and think more about it. But the uh, the part of Cohen's article that I do agree with is the last part where he argues, that Marx's views about value logically detach from the claim that he and subsequent Marxists made that workers are uh, are exploited under capitalism. That you know that he thinks that those are independent claims. The truth of one doesn't rise or fall on the truth of, of the other. And I I do think that that's right. As to you know whether differences, I think what I would say is that. There are various passages where Marx talks about exploitation. I am not convinced that he is anywhere in them explicit enough on questions like this one, uh, which are, does the claim of exploitation entail the labor theory of value? In other words, is the LTV built in to uh, to the exploitation claim or do they detach? Uh, how are the different parts of this uh, supposed to uh, supposed to relate to each other, all of that stuff. I, I think think that Marx makes various like suggestive and interesting comments on these things. I don't think that he necessarily says enough that you can, or certainly at least that I can, confidently uh, confidently say exactly what Marx's views are on some of these issues. I think he thought workers were exploited. And he definitely thought the labor theory of value was true and, you know, how the relationship between those two things worked and what and what the sort of full argument, you know, for fleshed out and made explicit for the exploitation claim would look like are things that are not spelled out enough in those passages for for me to uh, to be able to pronounce very confidently about Marx's views. But I also want to say, and I know this is a very long answer to a very simple question, but it's um but it's not a simple question from my perspective. I, th I think it's a, I think it's a I think it's incredibly ambiguous. I I, I would also point out that like the dialectical context there of that article in Arc Digital Media, you know that's not a uh, that's not a leftist publication. It's a publication that sometimes 
sometimes publishes leftists and the implied audience there is not um somebody who is a marxist of some sort who has some kind of detailed view about any of these questions the uh, the the implied reader is is somebody who's not necessarily convinced that there's anything defensible about marx's uh, views about exploitation and so I, I, I guess the, uh, the TLDR of all that would be that I think, I think that at least part of what Marx seems to be indicating in some of those passages where he suggests that there's an analogy between you know, feudal exploitation of peasants and capitalist exploitation of workers, uh, and that this is illuminating in some way about what he means by exploitation, uh, I think that what Cohen is saying is a, uh, is a defensible, rational reconstruction of the most convincing core of that claim by Marx, although I certainly wouldn't claim that it, it captures everything that he ever said about the subject. Uh, let me uh, intervene uh, to make a correction, which might go over some people's heads, but um, to me it's important. The temporal single system interpretation is an interpretation of the quantitative aspect of Marx's value theory. It's not an interpretation of the labor theory of value, and I, I, I'm not sure what that's meant, what, what is meant by the, the phrase interpretation of labor theory of value, but it's, it's not a theory in its own right. And it's not just like, here's a view of how value is determined. It, it's an exegetical interpretation, which means it stands or falls according to how well it is able to make sense uh, of what Marx wrote and make it make sense. So it, it's it's not like I have any any position on on a lot of these questions regarding you know is the labor theory of value true? I don't even know like exactly what that would mean, by the way. But I I, I think that the the question that the, the, that Brendan was asking went uh, more to the issue of. You said that the worker is the only person who creates the product and thus the only person who has a right to it. You're, you're saying that that was Marx's view? Uh, I'm saying that it's a rational reconstruction of his claim uh, that workers are, uh, are exploited. So Cohen's point is that, you know, the claim that workers... Uh, man, I wish I had this in front of me, but, the, uh, but you know, there's, there's a sort of... Uh, simplified version of um of a a claim that mark certainly makes that is uh that i'm, I'm sure you could you could correct the uh, the details of but the uh, the sort of uh simplified uh, version uh is you know workers create value uh i think the i think the more uh the more precise way to 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 express the claim is something like that uh value is a function of average social necess socially necessary you know labor time which what exactly the relationship between that and saying that workers in some sense create value is uh is is something that uh that i wouldn't i certainly wouldn't stake my life on being able to uh, to explain that correctly i think that you know just just going with the sort of crude popular version you know that that labor creates value okay so if you think that Marx believes something like this and he further believes that workers are being exploited, then the question is, what's the relationship 
between uh you know between these these two claims like if uh why is it that labor creates value uh, would mean uh that workers have a uh have a right to that value that you know that there's that there's something that's going on here that's analogous to uh to the exploitation of uh of, of feudal peasants you know who who have to uh you know aren't just working for themselves but you know are also working for you know for the lord who you know they owe part of their uh, part of their labor to and that the more you think about that, the less obvious the relationship between those two things is. I mean, if you uh, if you accept marginalism about value, and that you know, so you say that the value of a product is uh, is created by the desire that uh, the consumers have for it. You know, it, it it certainly doesn't wouldn't follow from that. And I mean, I, I know you want to dig into the follow from part. I'll I'll just wait, and we'll uh, you know we'll deal with uh, with that when you ask it. But that certainly wouldn't give us a reason to think that consumers were being like unjustly deprived of the uh, of the value if uh, if if they didn't get it so I, it's not it's not i think that cohen's claim is that marx says that this is why this counts as a form of exploitation but that this uh, that this seems to capture the intuition behind marx calling this a form of exploitation i i would like to get into the the issue of marx and the issue of rights, okay? Like, did Marx say that the worker has a right to the product? You know, Marx almost never speaks in uh, explicitly normative terms. He does sometimes, especially with freedom. That's like the, one of the few normative concepts he seems really comfortable with. Uh, but, you know, he's, he certainly doesn't, except for very dismissively, you know, use language like uh, rights or justice. But I don't think that means that he doesn't have an implied theory of of rights or of, uh, of of justice, I think he makes a lot of comments that only make sense uh, read against some some kind of implicit commitments uh, about what would count as as a just or fair distribution. He certainly does seem to uh, to believe that there is some kind of uh, of default right, you know, that can be overridden by all these other considerations uh, to the product of their labor. I, I would agree with you that he doesn't avoid normative language and he, he, he does talk about uh, fairness and so forth. But, uh, I mean, in, in the critique of the Gotha program, Marx said flat out that the present day distribution of income is fair. And he said it's the only fair distribution on the basis of the present day mode of production. And he said what was wrong with that program he says it was a mistake to make a fuss about so-called distribution and put a principal stress on it because, I mean, basically his point is, you know, if you don't like this, it's not a problem of the distribution of, of income. It's a problem of the society from which this kind of distribution of income arises. So why aren't you talking about that? Uh, in a very famous phrase, right in the midst of all of this same document, he says that right, you know, justice... Uh, the realm of rights can never be higher than the economic structure of society and its cultural development conditioned thereby. So what he's saying is, in this kind of society that we now live in, this is what is right, and it's right that uh, we got this kind of income distribution, even though obviously the worker is the only person who creates the product. Marx was not saying that that's unfair. In Capital, he said that the workers are not defrauded, he said that the surplus value or the profit that the capitalists get is their legitimate property. So 
it's it's not a question of whether he 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 discussed rights. The, the question is this connection between the theory of exploitation or Mar- what Marx said about exploitation: the workers are exploited. To make the jump from that to him saying that it's unfair, unjust, that the property of the that the capitalists appropriate is not legitimately theirs. That that move is not the move that Marx made. It's 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 the opposite of the the move that he made. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I I strongly disagree, uh, and and I, I think there are a couple things that you know threads that should be usefully separated here. I do agree that the first thing that you mentioned, uh, the the line about you know making too much of a fuss about distribution rather than uh, rather than attending to the central question of uh, who's in control of the uh, the means of production is the key to uh, to understanding uh, what he's saying here. Although I think I'd read the significance of that a little bit differently than, than you would. And, uh, and also uh, some of those other passages that, uh, that, you, uh, that you mentioned. So, you know, when you talk about how, you know, no society can, you know, can have, you know, right that's, you know, that's higher than uh, the, uh, the mode of production uh, allows for, uh, what does that mean? I don't think it's it's transparent, uh, you know, to put it mildly, uh, you know, what it means. But I think a uh, I think a reasonable gloss on what it means is that the level of fairness that you can have uh, is a function of the um, the relations of production, and of course, what relations of production you can have is a function of the development of uh, the uh, the productive forces. Uh, of of a society and 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 so it's 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 sort of foolish to uh, think that you can you know that you can stand outside of history and and sort of um, talk about you know what uh, you know what would be ideal rather than focusing on what the possibilities are that are created by uh, the you know arrangement of material forces at any given moment in time and what you know possible advances for uh, for greater right that that allows. I mean, even when he is talking about how that, you know, you can't have more, you know, right than is enabled, uh, you know, by any particular uh, mode of production. You know, one of the contexts in which he's talking about that is when he's talking about this two-phase scheme of the development of, uh, of communism. And it's very explicit in the text that he doesn't think that that means, you know, that you can't criticize something the sort of amount of fairness of something that uh, that currently exists uh, just because more fairness couldn't exist in that individual society uh, or if he does mean that you know he's being inconsistent because in the same passage he's he's doing that you know he's saying yeah there is a certain sense in which uh, this this first phase uh, where where distribution uh, would still have to be tied to dura- duration and intensity of labor uh, there is a certain sense in which that's that's unfair, but uh, because because right as it emerges in the society that's coming straight out of capitalism is still bourgeois right, and you know you can only buy this further you know development of the productive forces uh, under communism that will create this kind of superabundance that will let people you know just just kind of take what they need in this more advanced uh, communist society. You know that that's what allows for uh, for a greater degree of rights. So it seems to me that the picture that he's painting is one according to which we can compare the justice of different, you know, economic arrangements, both before and after, you know, the, the transition away from uh, from capitalism. It's just that you have to understand that uh, that how much of a development in a more just direction, you know, you can have is a function of the development of the other uh, forces and relations of production. And, and finally, on this, I, I don't see how you're getting from... Um, Saying that, of course, it's not true that the uh, the capitalist has uh, has defrauded the worker, 
uh, which is not a claim that you find anywhere in Cohen or in me, uh, is is a claim about fraud, right? You know, the uh, the claim, you know, which is, you know, I, I think is Marx's claim, is that the fact that the worker has to work a certain number of hours for himself, but then a certain number of hours uh, for the capitalist is a result of coercion. And, and of course, you know, it's not that, you know, yes, it's it's legitimate, you know, as long as we've got this mode of production, you know, it's it's your, uh, what you get as a result of, of that coercion uh, is, is your legitimate property, you know, we're going to be able to have more right, you know, we're going to have a more fair distribution once we change the mode of production. And, and, and I think that when he talks about how, uh, you know, the question of, of production uh, is, is the central question, you know, that, that inequities in distribution, it's not that he doesn't think they're inequities, he absolutely does, but he thinks the inequities in distribution are symptoms of uh, who's in control of the means of uh, of production that when workers are in control they can they can arrange things things differently and you know even though it's not going to be everybody's getting exactly the full product of uh, of, of what they put in I, I think the key point as I would read that passage is that the uh, the workers get to decide that for themselves collectively. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to say uh, I don't think I did say that you or Cohen said that the workers are defrauded. What I'm trying to do is say what is the relationship between your claim that the exploitation of the worker implies that the worker has a right to the product okay i'm I'm saying is, is that a view that marx shared and it does seem to me that his point that the workers are not defrauded and in the same passage he says that the surplus value or profit is the capitalist's legitimate property it does seem to me that that goes to the question of did Marx move? Did he did he jump from the workers are exploited to the workers have a right to the the entirety of the product, you know, minus deductions or something? He he really says the opposite. Okay, I don't think he says the opposite. I, I, I don't think the passages you're quoting establish that he thinks the opposite. I think that you're doing a lot of interpretive work to get from not defrauded and legitimate property, especially in light of those comments about the amount of right that you can have is a function of uh, the, uh, the mode of production uh, that the, you know, I, I think that that, you know, helps us understand what he means by legitimate property. But I mean, certainly I, I, I don't, I don't see how you get from legitimate property and not defrauded to, uh, to it's not unjust. It's not coercive that, you know, that workers have to hand over part of the product of their labor to capitalists. Well, it's the capitalist legitimate property. It's the only fair distribution on the basis of the present day whatever. Yeah, on the basis of the present day mode of production. Yeah. Right? Yeah, sure. That's a massive uh, distinction that, you know, that, that if we agree that Marx's overall view about rights and fairness is that what rights you can have, what's a sort of possible form of fairness as a function of the mode of production, then yeah, it makes perfect sense that they'd say it's the only fair distribution under this mode of production, which is, of course, a good reason to move to a different mode of production. Which would have its own standard of fairness. And yeah, I mean, he's saying the lower phase of communism uh, has a mode of production and the fairness there would be relative to that mode of production. And in the higher phase of communism, more developed production, etc., you have another mode of fairness that's appropriate to that, and that's the one, you know, from each according to their ability, to each according to their needs. But don't think about only that being fair until we get there. It's not even possible. Basically, you can't say things are unfair 
if they're the only things possible, right? I think that if one is a higher mode of fairness that the uh, that which is which Marx certainly seems to be saying in this this passage that like the kind of fairness that's possible in a more advanced society is considerably more fair than the kind of fairness that's uh, that's possible in the capitalist mode of production. And in fact, even within communism, that the kind of fairness that's possible in the higher stage of communism is more fair, which is very explicit about saying, than uh, the kind of, uh, of fairness that's possible in the lower mode of communism. I mean, I, I guess maybe I put it like this, maybe this will clarify the, the difference. If somebody says that a kind of fairness in which workers get the product of their labor minus deductions is more fair than a kind of fairness in which uh, workers are forced uh, to uh, to give part of uh, the product of their labor uh, to uh, to capitalists uh, because capitalists own the you know, means of production. I think the difference between that and saying that a reason to move from capitalism to socialism is because uh, workers uh, have a right, at least a default right, a right after deduction to the product of their labor, those strike me more as two different ways of talking than two different claims. I, w- I would disagree with that, but I'm not really concerned with the disagreements which are at a fairly high level. I mean, I, I, I ba- basically, let me put in a nutshell what I think Marx is saying with this right can never be higher. What Marx is saying is right, justice, fairness is all relative to the economic structure of society. Okay, But what I'm much more concerned about are suggestions, implications that Marx was somehow saying within capitalist society, what is taking place relative to this mode of production and its standards of justice and so forth is unfair. I mean, for instance, when somebody from the Sanders campaign starts talking about workers being given an ownership stake, which is, you know, that was the Michael Brooks uh, episode that, that got that got played that, that you were on. I mean, this was not what Marx was talking about, was making workers' lot more fair within capitalism by giving them an ownership stake. Right. It was not talking about, let's make a fairer capitalism. I agree with that, but I also think they're different questions. I mean, I think there is a sense in which Marx thinks that fairness is relative to the mode of production, but I don't think it's a sense that precludes uh, being able to compare the fairness of uh, modes of production, which he actually does all the time. Given that we can compare the uh, the fairness of modes of production, then we can say that one in which uh, you know workers are uh, are exploited is uh, is less fair than one in which workers aren't exploited. You know, I I think a reasonable way to uh, to express that is that that workers have a right to maybe collectively and democratically dispose of the product uh, of their labor, and that that what makes exploitation exploitative is that that's not the uh, that's not the case that instead they're being forced to uh, to give some of it up i think that's just so that would, that would be my reading of of what of what marx is saying now i think as far as uh, brianna joy gray talking about you know ownership stakes yes i certainly I, I agree that you know that she's talking about reform and uh and marx is talking about revolution but that does strike me as a slightly different subject I'll, I'll drop this because, uh, Brendan, this is a, this is a fairly high-level discussion, and uh, I mean I don't agree with what Ben is saying about higher levels of fairness. There are higher levels. I agree that there are higher levels, but can they be ranked in terms of fairness? I don't think 
so it, let me put it this way. I think Marx's point is no, that fairness is relative to the particular structure of society, and we need a different vantage point to be able to rank or judge or discriminate among these different societies and their corresponding notions of failure. But, I mean, this is a really, you know, abstract theoretical debate at a certain point. Do you, do you think Marx is a, thinks that we can rank societies according to freedom? Freedom and the, the, the potential of human beings uh, within those societies. I, I think, first of all, if we can rank in terms of freedom, then I think that we're, where, that, that we're there in terms of the exploitation point, because to the extent that the exploitation point is a point about coercion, that uh, that you know that workers are forced to surrender you know some of the uh, the product uh, of their labor, then I think if we're making a point about uh, about comparative freedom, I, I think we're at uh, we're at home base and uh, and it all. Oh, Marx hate Marx hated exploitation. It, I mean, the people who say this is not a normative concept, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Okay, I, I'm I'm totally with you there if that's what you're saying. Okay, I'm just saying the worker having the right to the product is not the, the, the issue here. But yes, of course, it's a normative concept. If, if that's what you're, you're, you want to argue, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. Okay, I'll drop it. But I think that the, the gap that you're seeing between saying that if, if it's a normative concept, if, if it is more just, better for human freedom, better for human flourishing, again, when he talks about like what you have in the first phase of communism is merely bourgeois rights, that certainly seems to be a ranking of right to me. All, all of these things, I, I, I think the distinction between any of these others and saying uh, that we can compare societies by saying that in one case, you know, we should, it's better to have one society than the other. That like what, what Marx and his, you know, one of his things to the uh, First International says, you know, a free and cooperative, you know, system of labor. This certainly seems to be a claim about rights to me if we're arguing about the word right as opposed to the word freedom or the word flourishing, then I'm not too emotionally invested in that. Well, I, I feel like we've sort of been proceeding tangentially to the, maybe this more central part of the question, which is whether or not Ben's version of Marxist theory of exploitation is the same as what Marx is actually doing in Capital. That is, whether it's true that Marx actually says workers are the only people that create the product, therefore we workers are the only ones who have a right to the product, and therefore exploitation exists if they don't receive the full value of the product. I certainly don't think that's what Marx's argument is in Capital, and I think Andrew would agree. So as well, I don't think that's, an, that's a suitable gloss for what Marx is saying. But here's what we're going to do. We uh, are going to have more of this conversation and try to get to the bottom of this difference uh, between us and uh, Ben about Marxist theory of exploitation. And we're going to release that as the second part of this episode. So stay tuned to Radio Free Humanity, and you'll be able to catch that episode soon. As you can tell from the exit music, this is the end of this episode. If you like the podcast, please do write to us. You can also leave a comment on MarxistHumanistInitiative.org or any of the places where you listen to the podcast. We'd love to hear from you.